summer sermon series walking chapter by chapter through the Old Testament book of Esther. And today we're going to be looking at the beginning of chapter 9. So if you have a Bible or device, you can turn or swipe there if you'd like. You can also follow along in the screen behind me. But much of this story is centered around the fact that Esther becomes an unlikely queen in a foreign land, and God works throughout this story to bring about salvation to his people. And this idea occurs over and over throughout the whole of the Bible. The fact that God saves his people. He saves his people. And today we're talking about a specific aspect of God's salvation. What he saves us from and the magnitude of salvation. But as we begin this morning, uh, I want to make two introductory comments uh, to our sermon, um, just kind of big picture things that things that we try and touch on every once in a while here at Center Church. So first of all, we typically preach through books of the Bible. And one of the reasons for this is if we just hop around and select certain topics or parts of the Bible to preach on, we probably would never preach a section like we're preaching today. We'd never get to this. It talks about death, and has some morbid aspects to it. And it's dangerous for us to select parts of the Bible that we simply enjoy or that we find palatable, in a sense. One of the presidents of our country did this, Thomas Jefferson. Uh, He was known to have created his own Bible. And so what he did is he went through and he selected the certain parts that he liked. And if you notice here, Uh, It says, the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth extracted, right? So he took the Bible, and then he extracted the parts of the Bible that he liked and said, this is is the Bible I will read. When we do this, uh, in a sense, we begin to play God. And we're in as much danger as Thomas Jefferson as doing this ourselves. If we just focus on the parts that we like. But the Bible is clear that the whole of the Bible has profit for us, even parts like we are preaching today. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture, and all means all, okay? Not some, but all, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And so, when we come to parts of the Bible like we're coming to today, We want to wrestle through these hard parts of the Bible and let it instruct us in ways that are profitable for us. Even those parts of the Bible that may make us a bit uncomfortable or that force us to reckon with pictures of God that maybe we we just don't like at times. And so this is one reason why we value preaching through books of the Bible. It forces us to be confronted with parts of the Bible, or we could say things that God is saying to us that we might otherwise gloss over, or dismiss, or minimize in some way. And this is probably generally true of much of the Old Testament. The reality Many of us struggle to open up our Bibles, just, just generally speaking, but that's especially true of the Old Testament. The stories in the Old Testament can seem weird to us, disconnected from our reality today, but one of the keys to understanding and being invigorated by Old Testament books is to see how they are part of the same story as the New Testament. 
to see how the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. And it's not simply a bunch of random stories. And so I wanted to give a brief reminder as to why we are also so Jesus-centered in our preaching and reading of the Bible. We want you to understand why we do what we do, not just to assume that you get it. And so there is this reality that we are Jesus-centered in the way that we are reading the Bible. We can go to lots of different places in the Bible to, uh, to support why we do this, but where I'm going to go this morning is 2 Corinthians one twenty. This reads, For all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. So you can go throughout the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, and find tons of promises that God makes. And what we read here is that all of those promises are actualized, they are fulfilled in and through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so we've got to have Jesus as the lens to how we're reading the Bible. And this would be one of the many reasons why we want to centralize Jesus. He is our mediator, our mediator of forgiveness of sins, our mediator of salvation. But he's also the mediator of all the promises that we're reading in the Bible. They come through Jesus. So the whole Bible hinges on Jesus' life death, and his resurrection, what we talk about as the gospel. And so we want to read the Bible in the way Jesus teaches us. The New Testament authors teach us to read the Bible. Okay, so those are my introductory comments for us this morning. We're going to read Esther 9, verses 1 through 19. Uh, I'm going to invite Nathan to come up, and uh, he's going to help save my voice a little bit. This morning. (laughs) Esther chapter 9, 1 through 19. Now, in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, On the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces And the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men and also killed Parshandatha and Dalphon and Aspatha and Poratha and Adalia and Aridatha 
and Parmashta and Arisai and Aridai and Vaisatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamidatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th, and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who lived in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. Thanks, Nathan. Y'all probably glad I didn't ask you to read those names of Haman's sons, right? I actually messaged Nathan at 7.30 this morning, so he was kind of like put on the spot this morning. So thanks for doing that, Nathan. Let's pray. God, thanks so much for this chapter. Thank you for the ways in which it instructs us. I pray it would do that this morning. I pray that your Holy Spirit would have sway in our hearts and that you would teach us about your greatness, teach us about your patience, teach us about your hatred of sin, and I pray that we would be drawn to Jesus and our faith in him would grow in these moments together. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, so let's briefly summarize this section. So Haman because of his hatred for a man named Mordecai, had set about to invoke this one day during the year in which Persians were free to kill and plunder Jewish people. And that day had now come, the day when Persians could take mastery over their enemies. But what we read in this story is that is not what occurred. In fact, it explicitly states the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. 
And we see then how Mordecai rises in power and how the Jewish people strike fear in their attackers and overcome them in a substantial and definitive manner. The result of all of this led to the feasting and gladness of the Jewish people throughout the whole of the Persian province. And and next week we're going to deal with more of the feasting and the gladness because that comes in an even stronger way at the end of uh, this book. So we're going to deal with more of what's happening in the front end of these verses this morning. Okay, so throughout this series, we've been reminded how God is never talked about in this book. Not one time. He's never mentioned explicitly, and yet, this is a book of the Bible. It's in the Bible, and the Bible is intending to communicate the story of God's salvation. When we look at what has happened with Mordecai, we see such a radical transformation in his life. Remember, this is the man who not long ago was lamenting in sackcloth and ashes. The reason he was doing that is because he felt he was as good as dead. Life for him and his people seemed to be over. Yet, now, here we find him being spoken of in this way. It says, the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them, on the people of Persia. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. What we're getting here in the life of Mordecai is a picture of what God does spiritually when he saves someone. Death to life. Ephesians 2 states this succinctly. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. In and through Jesus, dead things come alive. This is intended to be astounding for us. This is the picture we're getting in the life of Mordecai. Resurrection. It's intended to cause us to marvel, to give us a glimpse of the power of God. Now, I think we need to chat about this for a moment, about Mordecai. Because I think it's easy for us to look at him and to desire some things that we're seeing in his life. We would like to have power. We would like to have maybe some of the control. Maybe not over a nation, right? But in our own lives, in our own context, whether it might be with circumstances in our lives, with our kids, with something at job, we like to be in control. And this story is not given to us so that we yearn after control, after power or authority. We are to long for and trust in the one who possesses all power, all authority. Matthew 28, 18 finds Jesus saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus possesses all authority. All of it. So, whenever someone espouses authority, whenever we see someone in authority, government official, or someone else, we have to understand it's given to them. 
It's not really theirs. They and we are accountable for any authority we possess and how we exercise that authority. When we look at Jesus here in Matthew 28, what's really interesting, what Jesus then says after making this audacious statement that he possesses all authority, he tells his followers then to go in his name and to make more followers of Jesus. That authority that he hands off to them, this is how they are to use it. To tell others about Jesus and to help other people trust in Jesus and to follow after him. And so for us today, as we read this and we understand what's going on, we aren't to seek added power. To whatever authority we have, we're not to seek additional authority or to seek followers for ourselves. We are to be about the business of Jesus, the fame of Jesus. So it's not about our name. It's not about making ourselves look better. It's about showing Jesus off to others. So we need to be really careful that what we're seeing in this story in Mordecai's life and what we're seeking in our life is about Jesus' authority. It's about Jesus' power. It's about his control of us, not our control of things or people. Okay. For this next bit, I want to hone in on the title of the sermon. Sin leads to death. I mean, this is the title of a sermon that really draws people in, right? Like, we should splash this on the front page of the website, right? Within the story of Esther, we're given a picture of Haman as an angry, vengeful, self-absorbed, murderous man. We talked earlier in this series about how he was a picture of sin. Haman was a picture of evil. A couple of weeks ago, Brett preached on the death of Haman, and that was kind of the initial picture of how we saw how sin leads to death. Today, we see kind of an amplification of that reality as his sons die, as thousands of other people die. What's going on in this story is tragic. It's horrific in many senses. I want to press in on this because the very nature of sin is to minimize its horror, right? Satan is a deceiver. So his whole intent in our lives is to help us think that our sin is not as bad as it really is. Esther 9 gives us a glimpse of what sin is produces. Rampant death. That's what we're seeing here in Esther 9. I thought about this this past week, what it would look like, what it, what it would feel like for me to stand in the middle of Fridley and to have this whole city decimated, destroyed, everybody killed, and according to the numbers, I'd be like three times over here in Fridley. That's a sickening thought. Devastating thought. Now, because these types of thoughts are grotesque, we tend to avoid them. Right? We, we don't like unpleasant things. 
But this can be massively dangerous for us. Because Satan wants to turn down the volume on the seriousness of sin in our own hearts, and because we still live with a sin nature in us that needs to be combated, it's so easy for us to justify sin in our own hearts or to minimize how bad it really is. To compare ourselves to someone else, right? And think, well, at least I'm not doing that kind of a thing. It's easy for us to listen to what Satan is already whispering to us. Lies and deceit. So when we're confronted with an opportunity to sin, and it looks pleasing, it looks enticing, it looks satisfying, we don't naturally think about death. That's not the first thing that comes to our mind. We think about the immediate, uh, immediate pleasure, right? What this thing will make us feel. What this thing will make us think. What this thing will provide for us. And going back to the beginning of our sermon, this is why preaching the whole Bible is necessary for us. Our sin nature, our tendency to justify, needs to be confronted. It needs to be confronted. We need to be told that thing that seems so good, so fun, so ideal, actually leads to death. Spiritual death, most importantly. But it can also lead to physical death as well. The thing that promises so much will actually give us exactly what we don't want. Right? What, what sin promises is life. Happiness, right? That's the way Satan paints the picture of sin. But that's not where it leads. It leads to death. It leads to shame. It leads to distance from God. And that's what, not what we typically think about when we're confronted with sin. And what adds fuel to this fire is thinking about the ripple effects of Haman's sin. Now, it's not as though Haman's sons are innocent. Okay? It's not as though the rest of the Persian people are innocent in all of this. But they are impacted just as much as Haman and the decision that Haman made. So Haman made this edict, right? He wrote out this edict and said, Persians can kill Jews. And that's what started all of this. But these Persian residents, Haman's sons, are also killed as a result of Haman's murderous decrees. The murderous seeds sown by Haman have now borne their fruit. And it's death. And it's not death in the way that Haman thought it would be or what he had hoped for. It is a rare parent and wholly wicked parent that wants to invite curses upon their children. But this is what is done when we don't lead our children in the way of the gospel. Our children need Jesus. We all need Jesus, right? For the sake of this illustration, our kids need Jesus. So much more than a good education, our kids need Jesus. So much more than having great opportunities athletically, our kids need Jesus. So much more than being cool. 
Our kids need Jesus. And in needing Jesus, there's this aspect that our kids need to understand what sin is. They need to understand what sin does, what sin produces, and how Jesus is better and overcomes all of that. So I want to state for us that our sin is never individual. That's part of the the picture we're getting here in Esther 9. Our sin is never individual. It never only affects us. We are a church, which means we are a spiritual family, which means we are connected to one another in meaningful ways. So my sin never only affects me. It also affects you. Your sin also affects the whole of us. Even if you don't see that or you don't understand how that actually works itself out, our sin will negatively affect one another. Your selfishness will draw you down a path that will cause others to be neglected, overlooked, not cared for maybe in a certain way. That that's just how things work. And so we get this call throughout the Bible flee from sin. And, and not just flee from sin, but, but also kill it. Put it to death. To see sin for what it is. It's something that wants to kill us. So it's either kill sin or be killed by sin. That, that's what lays before us. And so all of this, then, is one way in which I think we find good news in parts of the Bible that some of us might want to avoid because God is viewed in a certain way. God is viewed as harsh. God is viewed as something that maybe I just don't want to think about in certain ways. God isn't scared of looking maybe a bit negative or awkward or weird if it saves us from what sin produces, which is death. We see this most pointedly in Jesus' willingness to endure the cross. He becomes sin. What, what happens to Jesus on the cross is he becomes sin. Okay? And in that moment, then, he is, he is scorned, he is mocked, he is beaten, and he is killed for our salvation. And, and this is the great reversal. In the great reversal, Jesus became sin and died so that we might live. And that's the best news in the world. But the only way we understand how great Jesus' salvation is, is by understanding the horror of our sin as well. If sin is small, if it's not a big deal, then Jesus' salvation isn't that great of a thing. We've got to understand that we've invited a death sentence upon ourselves. Sin is that bad. It will annihilate us. It will destroy us. It will kill us. And this is what Jesus is saving us from. And this is the benefit of parts of the Bible like Esther 9. It gives us a vivid picture of what sin produces in the hope that then it causes us to feel revulsion in ourselves. That we would say, that thing that looks so pretty, that is so enticing to me, I need to hate that thing. 
because it's promising something to me that it can't deliver upon. It's promising life, but it will lead to death. We end our sermons with what we call gospel application. We call it this because the point of Christian preaching is not to cause you to become a better person. It's not to cause you to kind of create a list of moral to-dos so that you can look better to God. The point of Christian preaching is for us to understand we need to be saved from sin and from ourselves. We can't save ourselves. And so when we walk out of here today, the intent is that you would be looking at Jesus, thankful for who he is and what he's done for you. Not walking out of here thinking, okay, this is how I've got to be a better person. These are the things I've got to do to be a better Christian. And then maybe Jesus will accept me. No! Jesus loves you while you are sinning. And he invites you to receive forgiveness of sins and salvation. So Esther 9.16 says, The Jews got relief from their enemies. For us today, Jesus offers us relief from our enemies. And who, who are our enemies? It's not your neighbor who's not mowing far enough to your property line, right? That's not your neighbor. Your neighbors are sin, Satan, and death. Those are our enemies. So whatever scares us, taunts us, kills us, Jesus says he will ultimately overcome it. He will overcome it. As we sang earlier, he will rescue us from it. Jesus, we read in the last book of the Bible that Jesus holds the keys of death. He holds them. He himself holds them. And he will, like he has already, he will resurrect those who trust in him. He will totally defeat our enemies. Those enemies that we look at today and we wonder, how can we conquer that thing? We can't, but he will totally defeat those enemies. We must simply cling to Jesus to look at him and trust in him, trust him to do what he has promised to do. So where are you encountering enemies in your own life? Where do you need relief? Are you seeking in that circumstance, in that situation, are you seeking Jesus Or are you trying to white-knuckle your way through it, to figure it out on your own, to do the work on your own? The call for us is to believe Jesus, that he will do for us what he has done for his people in the past. That he will provide us relief from our enemies. Secondly, then, The gospel is the true harbinger of gladness and feasting. We're going to get into gladness and feasting more next week, but this chapter ended with gladness and feasting. In this story, it is the onset of God's salvation that produces 
gladness, and feasting. I think if we think about our own lives, we all would be drawn to that idea, gladness and feasting. Most people aren't going to give a thumbs down to that. Like, we want to be in that place. We want to go to that party. Satan will relentlessly whisper to us that our gladness is found in you fill in the blank. You know your heart. You know the ways in which you're enticed and you're tempted. You having this thing, you experiencing you, this thing, you feeling this feeling, you possessing this thing. And I want to declare to all of us that the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is where your gladness is found. It's not found anywhere else. It's found in Jesus. So the call for us then is to rest in him, to receive what he offers to us, his salvation, for that is where our gladness is found.